When Naila Franklin went missing in September 2007, police quickly narrowed in on a suspect. Less than three months later, he was arrested, but it would take eight years for the case to go to trial as he continued to proclaim his innocence and assert his right to defend himself in court. Would Naila Franklin's family ever find justice? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to the show. This week's episode is one I've wanted to cover for a while, and I'm glad I have finally gotten to it. I just wanted to give a heads up that I will not have episodes for the next two Mondays because I will be out of the country. I'm taking a trip with just my 18-year-old, who is a senior in high school. I'm really looking forward to having some one-on-one time with him. He's on the verge of flying the coop. I will be releasing the usual third Thursday episode on a murdered Indigenous woman case, and it will come out while I'm gone. So let's go ahead and get into tonight's case, the case of Naila Franklin. One of the things that drew me to this case was Naila's family, so let's start there. When she was growing up, Naila's parents split up, but she remained close to both of them. So she ended up with this large, expanding family of siblings and half-siblings and step-siblings and such. But they all just considered themselves brothers and sisters. They did not use words like half and step. It was pretty much as ideal as any divorced family dynamic could be. And it's kind of funny because through this melting pot of a family, Naila actually ended up with two sisters named Ashley. She adored them both, and she adored everyone else in her family. When Naila was born, her mother chose that name because it means one who succeeds, and that's what she wanted for her daughter. During the pregnancy, there was a complication, and they weren't sure if Naila would be carried to term. So after she was born healthy, it seemed like such a fitting name. Naila then went on to succeed at everything she did. But in her family, I think that's just in the genes. I don't know if you're into comedy, but her sister is stand-up Marina Franklin. Her brother was torn between going to Stanford or MIT. Success is just what her family does. Naila fell somewhere in the middle of this big family, so she had people to look up to, and then she had people looking up to her. And she also held her ground in the middle of this family. Her sisters would go to her for advice, but only if they actually wanted to hear it, because Naila would give it to them straight. And everyone needs a friend like this, that person who will sit you down and be like, get it together, here's how, I love you and support you. And just a shout out to my person, Regan, who does this for me. I'm not just bringing up Naila's personality in the way I usually do. I always try to bring it up because I want us to remember that the victims in these stories were multidimensional people. They deserve to be remembered for more than just what happened on the last day of their life. That's why I bring it up. But this time, it is also relevant to what comes next. So Naila is in her 20s. She's single, smart, successful. 
living in a condo she bought in downtown Chicago, and she liked to date men that were in a similar place in their lives. She was picky, but Naila moved in professional circles, so she was exposed to the type of men she wanted to date, fellow young success stories. Given this, it seems kind of odd that she met one of her boyfriends, Reginald Potts, literally on the street in May 2006. It was a wealthy part of Chicago where they met, the Gold Coast, and Reginald was driving an expensive car, so he was definitely the type of guy Naila would be interested in. He was also in his late 20s. He was a real estate investor living in a high-rise with a view of Lake Michigan. Though Reginald seemed like the perfect catch on the outside, Naila and Reginald's relationship never really went anywhere. They both dated other people during the year they saw each other off and on, and the relationship was a bit more casual than romantic. At some point, within the first year of meeting Reginald, Naila decided she was seeing too many red flags. She definitely did not think Reginald was treating her well, and a friend of hers, who was a criminal attorney, agreed, and she ran a background check on him. And those red flags started waving even more. The background check revealed that Reginald wasn't the usual went-to-college-built-a-career-found-success kind of guy. He was actually only two years out of prison, and he had several felony convictions. Reginald's adult record began when he was 19. In the spring of 1996, he was arrested for having, on multiple occasions, stolen cars from dealerships in Cook County, Illinois. After he bonded out in one case, he stole the car back from the police impound by posing as a courier. While an employee was busy looking for some paperwork, he just took off with the car. It was recovered six weeks later when he took it to an auto body shop. This isn't exactly the version of events that Reginald seemed to be telling. The story that's going around in his defense is that he was working at a car dealership and, with a few other guys, decided to take some of the cars for a joyride one night, and he took a rap for all the cars taken. These are two very different versions of events being told. One is coming from Reginald, and the other is coming from the state's attorney's office, so you can decide who you believe. Reginald was eventually given a seven-year sentence, and I'm not sure how long he served. But he was out in March of 2001, and we know that because he was caught with another stolen vehicle. In June of 2001, Reginald told a Highland Park detective that he was going to blow the officer's brains out and his family's as well. Reginald then said the detective's family would never be safe and that he would feel the end of Reginald's 45. Reginald was arrested and taken into federal custody for intimidation. But when an FBI agent left him handcuffed to a bench and walked away, Reginald managed to slip out of the cuffs and run. He was caught two weeks later. Reginald also had physical altercations with law enforcement, though he's been very clear that it has always been in response to mistreatment by these law enforcement people. 
But in one case, he need a corrections officer in the groin. And he had misdemeanor convictions for things like theft and assault. His ex-wife had a restraining order against him. Reginald also used aliases and fake social security numbers a few of the times he was arrested. But by the time Naila met him, he was using his real name, and he appeared to be running the successful real estate investing business. In spite of these red flags, Naila didn't immediately break things off with Reginald. I half wonder if she accepted some of his explanations, at least for a little bit. But she really couldn't ignore everything forever. His stories were not adding up. Naila eventually found out that another girlfriend of his was pregnant or had just had a baby, and he denied the baby was his, which was a lie. So Naila wrote Reginald an email in mid-2007 with the subject line, Adios. The email told him that whatever was going on between the two of them was over for good. She accused him of lying about pretty much everything. He denied his child. He had lied about his past. And she also accused him of flirting with her friends. It was right around the same time that Naila met another man named Andre Wright at an art gallery. Andre was a lawyer from Milwaukee, which is just two hours north of Chicago. The two hit it off right away, and they began a long-distance relationship staying in touch mostly through texting and calling, and then taking trips to visit each other on the weekends. Naila's family really liked Andre. He was smart, educated, and they found him to be very kind and thoughtful. Some of their perception of Andre surely came from Naila because she really liked him, and she was telling her family all these wonderful things about him, And she was thinking of settling down with him, becoming a lot more serious. At some point, they discussed moving in together, even though they had only been dating for three months in September. On the 29th of August, when 28-year-old Naila was still not 100% sure where things were going with Andre, she called her coworker Tiffany to wish her a happy birthday. While they were chatting, Naila mentioned she was mad at herself because she had, quote, hooked up with Reginald Potts the day before. Tiffany told her, you know, you have a good thing with Andre. You need to just move on from Reginald. And then Tiffany said Reginald had also moved on. Naila asked Tiffany what she meant by that, and she said Reginald was dating another friend of theirs. An hour later, Tiffany's phone rang. This time it was Reginald. He asked her what she said to Naila about him. He said that Naila had called him, confronting him about dating or asking out their other friend. Tiffany told him that all she meant by what she said to Naila was that they both had other people in their lives. They should just move on from each other. Tiffany knew that Naila was upset, but we have to remember that just because we know someone's emotion, that doesn't always mean we know where it's coming from. Sure, it's possible she was a little jealous, but the two had also just spent the night together while he was pursuing a friend of hers. That's a little shady. She could have been upset on behalf of her friend, 
maybe even feeling like Reginald pulled her into some triangle. I mean, I would be angry if someone put me in that position. Naila decided that she wasn't going to just drop this. She sent an email on September 6th to several of their mutual friends, basically exposing Reginald. Some people considered this email to be revenge, but some viewed it as Naila basically saying, heads up, this guy is a creep. In the email, Naila wrote what she knew about Reginald's past, like his kids with his ex-wife, his new baby. She also included his criminal past, including his escape from federal custody. And then Naila blind CC'd Reginald to the email. Now, this is that personality I was talking about earlier. Naila would give it to you straight, and she wasn't the type who was going to sneak around and talk about things behind Reginald's back. She was going to let him know what she was saying. And this set Reginald off. He emailed her back. He attached a link to an article about his escape, which makes it kind of sound like he didn't care if people knew. But it's obvious he did care, because the email can best be described as profanity-laced. He also threatened to send people a sex tape of him and Naila together. Naila's email back to him was saying basically she knew he was trying to hurt her, but she's moving on. Then she said she was sorry that he wanted more, but she couldn't give it to him. She wished him the best and said she had no hard feelings. But Reginald had some feelings, and the emails continued, and Reginald started calling Naila. In a call from September 6th, the day she sent the email, Reginald told her that she was coming across as bitter because he didn't want to be with her anymore, and he said three or four times that he was very wealthy and could always find women to be around him. Reginald's voice on this voicemail is even, and he's not screaming at her. So to some people, you might think he doesn't sound that angry. But I hear a lot of anger. He's boosting himself up while he's putting Naila down for three minutes straight. And he keeps repeating himself multiple times. He's trying to make it sound like, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. But it's obvious he did care and he was spiraling. I have the audio of this call, but it has a lot of noise and distortion. It's kind of a rough listen, so I'm not going to hurt your eardrums by playing it here. I will go ahead and link to it in the show notes. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the primary sources that I used. I'll put them in a folder with this phone call and link it in the show notes. You can have fun reading hundreds of pages of police notes if you want. And me saying this in the episode right now, is a prompt to myself when I edit this episode to put that folder together. Okay, so there was another voicemail that we do not have a copy of. Naila saved it, but it was later deleted. We will get to that. Thankfully, though, Naila played it for her friends, so we have witnesses to what Reginald said. In this call, Reginald said he was going to have Naila erased. Naila took this threat seriously enough that on September 10th, she called 311. That's Chicago's city services number, 
and it is used for non-emergency police issues rather than calling 911. Naila told the dispatcher that she had an ex-boyfriend who was threatening her. She said this man, Reginald Potts, had been violent with other people in the past, but never with her. The dispatcher gave her the information on how to get an order of protection and took down the police report about the harassment. After making this police report, Naila emailed Reginald. She told him she filed the report and she was going to get a protection order against him the next day. She said he was not going to threaten her with that sex tape because she could have him locked up for it since he stole it from her house. She also told him he was a bully and hateful, but he was not going to bully her. Again, this is Naila's personality. She told him flat out that this time he was messing with the wrong woman. September 11th came around, and Naila did not go get that order of protection. A detective called her to follow up on her 311 call, and she said she planned on getting the order, but in the end, for reasons unknown, she did not. She may have thought this would blow over faster if she did not provoke him by getting the protective order. But she was still concerned enough that she gave her friend Dana the passwords to her email account and her voicemail. She told Dana that if anything happened, give those passwords to the police so that they could see the emails and the threatening voicemails Reginald had left for her themselves. On the morning of Tuesday, September 18th, 2007, Naila called her boyfriend, Andre Wright, to talk, and everything seemed normal. Naila did not tell Andre anything about the drama with Reginald swirling in the background. During the day, Naila and Andre texted a bit, they emailed, and then on his way home from work, Andre called Naila, which was pretty normal for them to talk in the morning and then in the evening. His call was around 8.15. Naila did not answer, but she did text him that she was at dinner and would call him later. Around 9 p.m., her sister Ashley called her and got the same thing, no answer, and a text saying she would call back after dinner. Ashley thought this was a little weird because Naila was the type who would answer the phone in the middle of dinner if a family member called. But she didn't, and Ashley just waited for a call back. But Naila did not call either of them. The next morning, September 19th, Andre tried to call Naila again for their usual morning call, and she didn't pick up. He later emailed her and didn't get a response. So then he sent her an email in all caps that said, Are you alive? He meant this in a lighthearted way, basically saying, I'm a little worried. Could you please check in? Still no response. Then Naila's sister Leah got a call from Naila's boss. She hadn't shown up to work that day, and she missed a very important meeting, and that is something Naila would never do. The boss wanted to touch base with the family and see what was going on. So Leah tried to call Naila, no answer. 
She called family members. She called friends. She tried to piece together, had anyone talked to Naila that day? Did anyone know what was going on? No one had heard from her since at least the day before, so Leah went to Naila's condo. She didn't get an answer when she knocked on the door, so she let herself in. Everything looked normal, except that Naila's eggs and coffee were sitting there, not cleaned up. Now, Leah, of course, couldn't know if it was from that morning or the day before. I think she assumed it was from that morning because people had heard from Naila the night before. But really, what they heard were just text messages, not her voice. Leah went to the police to report Naila missing, and the police took this case very seriously from the word go. But Leah worked in public relations, and she knew the media might not take it as seriously. She wanted media coverage so that she could find her sister, figure out what was going on, and she knew she was less likely to get it because Naila was a Black woman living in an urban area. And yes, I'm going to go there. I'm going to tell you what Leah, who was an expert in this, already knew. Black women are more than three times more likely than white women to be the victims of homicide in the U.S. Yet media coverage of these cases would make you think those numbers were inverse. Here's an example, and I'm going to call out the media I am in right now, and that is podcasting. In 1999, Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman went missing during a house fire that was intentionally set. There are literally a dozen podcasts that have covered their case. Let's look at Lizanne Froon and Chris Kramers, who went missing in 2004 while in Panama. I stopped counting after I got to 15 podcast episodes, and I could have kept scrolling. So now let me check the 2012 disappearances and murders of friends Ashley Conaway and Abrea Brown. Abrea's stepfather kidnapped both women at gunpoint, and their bodies were found a month later. There are zero podcasts on them. Or the Bradley sisters, who went missing from Chicago in 2001. They were little, just 10 and 3 years old. There are three podcast episodes about them and one of them is only 15 minutes long. And I'm going to stop anyone listening who is about to what about me with Asia Degree. Her story has gotten a lot of coverage, thankfully. But let's go ahead and back away from our anecdotes for a minute and look through your favorite podcast that doesn't specifically cover only persons of color or marginalized communities. My show included, I will volunteer as tribute Look at my feed. Look at the number of cases about white women versus black women. And keep in mind that if we mirror real life, there should be probably about three times more episodes about black women. Now, we are going to talk right now about gender and homicides because I almost always get an email or a comment about it when I bring up racial disparities in media reporting. This is a good time to address it. You will probably notice that most of the cases your favorite podcast covers are missing and murdered women and children with fewer adult male victims of any race, even though men have higher rates of homicide globally. This is actually 
also linked to what I'm talking about, and that is the concept of a quote-unquote worthy victim. Men are much more likely to be killed by strangers or non-family members. Fewer than 6% of male victims are killed by an intimate partner or a family member. So where are men being killed in these larger numbers? In the streets. Cases of gang and drug violence do not make for sympathetic victims. The cases the media broadcasts are the ones that interest the public, ones where we can almost immediately empathize with the victim. The more undeserving the victim appears, the more coverage they get. And this concept of who and who is not deserving of being the victim of a crime plays 100% into our biases, whether we are aware of it or not. Sometimes we are aware of it. The Vanished, fantastic podcast, go listen, but don't read the comments when she covers a case of a drug addict or a sex worker. It gets ugly. So while people will voice those overt biases, no one will say, or at least I don't think they would, that a single Black woman in an urban area is hard for them to empathize with. But implicit or latent biases do exist. By definition, we are not aware of them. The media perpetuates them, but we also contribute to that by the stories we click on, the ones we engage on in social media, and the TV programming we choose to watch. There are a number of factors that could make us more likely to engage in a story. We talk about the attractive white suburban mom being the ideal victim in the media, and I think we use that because it sums up the various components of this bias. Socioeconomic status, gender, lack of a criminal record, race, attractiveness. These can feed into our implicit biases. So Leah had no reason to expect the media to jump on the story of a missing Black woman from the middle of an urban area. So she called her media contacts and she pushed for coverage. The next morning, Naila's case was all over the news. The police got a search warrant for Naila's downtown condo. Everything looked normal except her two laptops, work one and personal one, and her cell phone were missing. They went down to the garage and found her car missing. They asked the building for security footage, and they were given a few tapes. Now, meanwhile, they're also pulling Naila's phone records. From the start, while they're waiting for all this stuff to process in the background, there were two people the police really wanted to talk to. Current boyfriend, Andre, and former boyfriend, Reginald. They talked to Andre right away. As soon as he found out Naila was missing, he went to Chicago to be with the family and see how he could help. So the police asked him when he last saw Naila, and he said it was that past weekend. They had attended a wedding in Milwaukee together. She went back to Chicago on Sunday. He explained that he had trouble getting in touch with her Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, so he sent that half-joking, are-you-alive email which two police looked a little suspicious, but if you back up, you can see that there is a benign explanation for sending that email. He was wanting her to at least check in real quick. 
Police asked him for his alibi, and he was able to prove that he was in Milwaukee the whole time and had only come to Chicago after Naila went missing. Before police reached out to Reginald, he reached out to them. He had heard that they wanted to talk with him and volunteered to come to the police station. At first, Reginald appeared to be very open and ready to speak with the police. He claimed he and Naila hadn't been in touch. He downplayed their relationship entirely. They then asked him about the police report that Naila had filed, and Reginald admitted there was a heated exchange, but that he was actually trying to get Naila to stop calling him, not the other way around. He said he's the one who broke things off with her, even though the emails indicated Naila was the one who dumped him. Reginald looked like a very good suspect on the surface, but he had an alibi for most of the day on the 18th. He said he went to Target with his friend Eccles, and then he went out with a few women separately, of course, that evening. He met them in public places, and then he got back to his apartment around 11.30 or so, where he met another woman who then spent the night. He did live in a secure high-rise, so her name would be on the guest register. He provided contact information for all of these people, and when police reached out to them, they all confirmed Reginald was where he said he was. So it looked like just a few days into the investigation, police were already back at square one, having barely gotten off of it to start with. But when Naila's phone records came in, they were a goldmine of information. They showed that Naila was a pretty prolific caller and texter, but on September 18th, there was sporadic usage after around 1 p.m. There were some big gaps in there. Around 1.30, Naila had called her voicemail, and a little before 2, a call worker called her, but the call lasted less than a minute and could have just been a voicemail being left. Then there was two hours of no activity before Naila called her voicemail again at nearly 4 p.m. Then two more hours of no activity, and at nearly 6 p.m., she checked her voicemail again. Now, shortly after this 6 p.m. voicemail check, Naila texted a friend named Brent just the word, hey. Then 10 minutes later, Naila's phone called a restaurant. Based on pings, the two calls were on towers 10 minutes apart, which gave police the impression she was driving. Now, I say it was Naila's phone that called the restaurant because it was not Naila on the phone. The person who called was a male's voice, and he was making a reservation for four people for 8.30 p.m. under the name Something Franklin. The person taking the reservation could not understand what he was saying. He was under the impression it was a woman's name, but it was an uncommon one, so he wasn't quite clicking with it. So he just wrote down Franklin. Then around 7.30, Naila called her friend Brent a call out from her phone. It was a 19-second phone call, and the connection was pretty bad and pretty staticky. Brent heard what sounded like Naila saying, can you hear me, before hanging up and then texting him that her phone wasn't working. She may have also said something about going out to dinner, either on this call or another call, that was similarly staticky and a bad connection. 
Brent's statements on this aren't entirely consistent, but it does make sense that he wouldn't remember exactly what happened on these very short phone calls. Brent heard what he thought was Naila's voice, but because of that bad connection, he may have just assumed it. Now, at this point, Naila's phone is pinging off a tower in Lansing, Illinois, which is 30 minutes south of Chicago, along the Illinois-Indiana state line. At 7.40, Brent tried to call Naila and got her voicemail, and a minute later, she texted she was at dinner, which is what was happening to everyone else who tried to call her that night. Shortly after this call, Brent tried to call her again, and Naila's phone was then pinging in Calumet City, which is between Lansing and Chicago. Naila then called her voicemail a little bit after that, and that's the last time she called her voicemail. Between 8 and 10 p.m., a few calls came in, but none of them were answered. And I know this is a lot of information, a lot of times, but we're almost done, and I will sum up what we just covered. At 10.14 p.m., a 911 call was made from Naila's phone. The call lasted 13 seconds, and the 911 recording had soft music playing in the background. There were no voices, no yelling, no screaming, no scuffle. It was almost like a butt dial, and it was just picking up the car radio. The phone was in Chicago at this point, in the South Loop area. The caller hung up, and dispatch called back. The phone was answered, but again silence, and the caller hung up again. Then seconds later, the caller called 911 again, that call lasting 18 seconds before hanging up. The dispatcher called back. The phone answered, but there was silence, so the dispatcher called back, and the same thing happened. Then at 10.16, another call is placed to 911 from Naila's phone. This one again, silence, caller hung up, dispatcher called back. You already know this tune. So basically, there were three calls from Naila's phone to 911 and four attempts by the dispatcher to call back. So let's trace the map that these cell phone pings are giving us. Naila's phone is first in Chicago. It travels south to Lansing and then travels north again, pinging in Calumet City and then finally back in Chicago. These records almost make it seem like Naila was out with someone, they went south to Lansing for some reason, and then came back to Chicago. Whatever happened to her would have occurred around 10.15 when the 911 call started. If she knew she was in danger but couldn't talk, she may have dialed 911 and just had it next to her. But things aren't always as they appear, and soon enough, police were building evidence that these calls and texts from Naila's phone were not her. Someone may have used her phone to fake activity, and we know plenty of cases where that has happened. It was about a day and a half, two days after Naila was reported missing, that the first proof of this theory came in. Officer Calvin Lucius in Calumet City was patrolling when he saw six boxes stacked on a curb in the parking lot of a golf course. He went to check them out, and they were full of medication samples. Thinking a doctor's office may have been robbed, he took them into evidence. Then he noticed the label on one of the boxes said Naila Franklin, and he knew she was missing. 
He and Naila didn't know each other, but they had mutual friends because they grew up in the same area. So he called Chicago PD, and they came down to search. They ended up even searching a lagoon near the parking lot that was surrounded by trees. They sent divers into the water. They dredged the bottom, but they found no signs of Naila or her things in the water. But what they did find in the trees and the bushes around the lagoon was women's jewelry that was strewn in the branches, sort of like someone took a handful of it and just chucked it. They showed the pieces to Naila's friends and family, and they said these items were consistent with jewelry Naila owned. It seemed very unlikely Naila would have thrown her jewelry into some trees or left medication samples out for anyone to find. So now police are pretty sure, at least in Calumet City, those pings were not her. Next to the lagoon that they were searching was an Outback Steakhouse restaurant. They tried to pull some security footage from that, and it was not successful. A surfer there did remember seeing a man and a woman get into an argument the week before, but she wasn't sure which night. And when police checked her schedule, they found out that she didn't work that night, that Naila went missing, so they didn't think this was related to their case. Another big break came very quickly when Naila's car was found. It was found in Hammond, Indiana. Now, you didn't hear Hammond, as a city mentioned on those cell phone pings, but it is just over the state border from Lansing, where her phone did ping. Someone who had seen the media coverage that Leah had pushed for called it in. He realized the missing Chevy on the news report was the same one that was parked on his street for a few days. It was parked in front of an abandoned house. Police responded, and everyone held their breath as they popped the trunk of the car. But there was no body in it. A search of the house and the neighborhood did not turn up anything significant, except someone saw a slim black man standing by the car and saw another car come by and pick him up. This description of a man by the car, the slim black man, actually fit both Andre and Reginald. The car itself was processed, and it had such a lack of forensics, even something as simple as a fingerprint, that the techs believed it had been purposely wiped down. The evidence is telling investigators that Naila's car went from Chicago to Hammond, so they're concentrating their searches in areas along this path of the highway. The police departments in those spots knew to keep their eyes out. And that is exactly how Naila's body was then found. In Calumet City on September 27th, eight days after Naila was reported missing, Officer Lucius was patrolling again. This time he was with his partner. This is the officer who had found the medications while on patrol, so it seems almost unreal that he would also be there when Naila's body was found. He and his partner were going by a vacant video store after four in the morning when a set of earbuds stuck in a tree caught the eye of the other officer. And then he noticed that right in that area, there was some tall grass along the edge of the parking lot. One section of it had been flattened like someone had gone through there, and it led right into the woods. 
They decided to check it out, and they only made it about five or six steps along this flattened grass path before they saw the partially buried and badly decomposed body of a nude woman. She was unrecognizable, but of course Naila was who they first thought it could be, especially since the abandoned medication had been found just a mile away. The next day, dental records confirmed the identity. An autopsy would not be able to determine the cause of death immediately. Naila's body had no broken bones, no broken hyoid bone to indicate a strangulation, and her tox screen didn't give any more information. Months later, it was ruled death by asphyxiation, and the police believe that Naila was strangled. The hyoid bone being intact doesn't rule strangulation out. It only breaks in one-third of cases. Meanwhile, Reginald Potts was calling the detectives to find out what was going on with the case and also to make sure they talked to all of his alibi witnesses. He wanted his name cleared of any suspicion. So, just as Reginald wanted, the police were running down his alibi. Even with his night accounted for, he was a solid suspect. He had a past that involved assaults, and Naila had filed a police report because of his harassing behavior. His harassing behavior being related to emails and voicemails seemed pretty significant because the killer had taken the laptops and Naila's cell phone, which are the places Naila's proof of Reginald's harassment would easily be found. Obviously, emails can be logged into on the web from anywhere, so that wasn't an issue to recover those. Police confirmed that Reginald, no matter how not mad he said he was, seemed pretty angry in the emails. But when it came to the voicemails, the voicemail where Reginald threatened to erase Naila, the one she shared with friends was not there. It had to have been deleted. Naila was purposely saving these voicemails from Reginald. But someone did access her voicemail after police believe Naila was likely dead. So it would have been easy enough for that person to have erased the worst of them. With the emails, though, police did find one that backed up Reginald's claim that the two were not on bad terms. It was sent from Naila to Reginald on the day she went missing. It's hard for me to say 100% what time it was sent because it's not clear where they took it from, and that would affect the timestamp. It seems to indicate its specific time, which would make it around 5 p.m. local time for Naila. The email was Naila apologizing to Reginald, saying she was hurt and she should not have retaliated. She then thanked him for not being mad and hoped they could be friends one day. It's incredibly hard to believe that Naila sent this email, especially since we know Reginald was angry with her, and that was easy enough to prove with the previous emails. It fit the narrative Reginald was trying to spin, though, which made it all the more suspicious. But let's get back to his alibi. It fell apart pretty quickly. The police were looking at the time frame from 7 to 10.30 p.m. when Naila's phone was on the move. Reginald's friend Eccles told the police that he and Reginald were at Target together at 7 p.m. 
which would exclude Reginald from being the one with Naila's phone. So the police pulled the security footage from the target. They followed Eccles through the store, camera to camera, and Reginald was not in a single frame. He wasn't with his friend. He wasn't off on his own. If Reginald was there in that target, he hid from the cameras. I don't know much, but I do know target, and I know hiding from those cameras would be nigh on impossible. They are everywhere. After seeing this, the police pulled Eccles in, and he finally admitted he lied because Reginald asked him to. Not only that, he got a call from Reginald that night, the night Naila went missing. Guess where Reginald was? He was in Hammond, Indiana, and he was stranded. He needed someone to come get him and give him a ride home. Hammond being, of course, where Naila's car was dumped. Eccles picked Reginald up and then said he dropped Reginald off in the South Loop around 10 p.m. Of course, this is the time and the place Naila's phone started calling 911. Police were looking at the security tapes from Naila's building, not just the day she went missing, but the day before as well, because neighbors reported seeing an unknown man lurking around the stairwell around 9.45 at night on the 17th. And this man resembled Reginald. He was seen coming off the garage entry elevator. Security responded to this unknown person in the building, asked him who he was. He said he lived there and he gave a fake name. The security guard called the police, but this man left before they arrived. Later, tape was found on that door to the garage, which would prevent it from shutting and automatically locking. This person appeared to be stalking the building. And of course, with Naila going missing the next day, police think he was stalking her. Now, it's not 100% sure that this was Reginald, though. The security guard could not be completely certain with the ID. The next morning, at around 11.50 in the morning, we're talking the day Naila disappeared, she was seen going out of the parking garage. About 12.30, which would be 40 minutes later, she's entering the building again through the garage doorway, and she got onto an elevator. There is a man with her who resembled Reginald Potts. As she's walking into the building, it appears she is on the phone, and the man with her is also on the phone. At 1.10 p.m., the two are seen getting off another elevator near the parking garage. And this is the last time Naila was seen. At 4.22, only Reginald was seen getting off an elevator near the garage. The police pulled CCTV from Reginald's building as well from that day, and they spotted him wearing the same clothing that the man in the footage from Naila's apartment building was wearing, which only further cemented in their minds that this was Reginald Potts with Naila. So this made him the last person to see her alive. So we have Reginald lying about his alibi, the last time he saw Naila, the nature of his communications with her. And he asked a friend to pick him up from where her car was abandoned. He is working really hard to look innocent, but it's falling apart quickly, and now he's looking more and more guilty. So let's go ahead and pile on some more evidence. 
Reginald was seen on his apartment security camera for the last time around 6 p.m., which is the last time Naila's phone pinged in the Chicago area. He next came back to the high-rise around 10.30 p.m., which is when we know Naila's phone was back in Chicago. And the time between these two points, the 6 p.m. to 10.30 p.m., as Naila's phone is pinging off these towers, so was Reginald's. On the evening of September 18th, those phones were together. Reginald's phone went down to the Lansing area, back up through Calumet City, and to Chicago, just like Naila's. The police headed over to Reginald's apartment to talk to him again, and they found his front door damaged. They later found out that he had to be evicted by the sheriff's department. His high-rent apartment was bare bones, and he was behind on his rent. He didn't own a bed frame. He slept on a mattress on the floor. Police later learned that the $225,000 Bentley he drove was not actually his. He had a friend co-sign, underwrite it or something, and he was not making his payments. Reginald was also behind in his child support, and in June 2007, he told a judge his business had dissolved and he was unemployed and indigent. But in September, when Naila challenged him, he was going on and on about how wealthy he was. He was partying at expensive clubs, driving this expensive car. He owned 15 pairs of Gucci shoes, but he couldn't pay his rent. He couldn't buy furniture. He couldn't pay his child support. He couldn't pay his legal bills. Reginald did what it took to look successful and wealthy on the outside, but it was a very thin veneer. This is where the police believe the motive for Naila's murder can be found. Not that Reginald was a spurned lover or that he was angry that Naila was talking bad about him. It's that she had scratched that surface and was exposing the real Reginald, the one he was hiding from everyone else. He couldn't handle it. Reginald thought he could get back some control with the threats about that sex tape, but Naila took that power away. She didn't back off. She doubled down. She reminded him he stole the tape and she could report the theft to the police. Revenge porn was not a crime back then. It is a class four felony in Illinois now, but in 2007, stealing was still a crime. Reginald lost control of the narrative. Reginald was arrested for Naila's murder in early December 2007, and police knew right where to find him. He was already in the Cook County Jail. He had been arrested in early October for threatening a gas station attendant. Then he pleaded guilty for violating an order of protection and was given 100 days in lockup. And then he was charged with punching a sheriff's deputy in the face. That's right, three arrests in the less than three months since Naila's death. After his arrest for Naila's murder, Reginald did speak to the police. He denied being in Naila's apartment or in her building on the 18th. The police said people saw his Bentley and he denied it. He said he was being framed. They then asked if he understood what CCTV footage was and that they saw him arrive and leave with Naila. Reginald told the police, and I am not even kidding, that the only way he was on the footage was if they got creative with Photoshop. 
They then wanted him to stand for a lineup, and there was some drama over that. He started taking off his clothes in the interrogation room as a way to refuse to go for the lineup. But now with Reginald charged with first-degree murder and the state seeking the death penalty, Reginald demanded his right to a speedy trial. And then he did everything he could to delay it. So here's the thing with the timelines when we're talking about a defendant's right to a speedy trial. The state has to abide by this. The state has to make sure the defendant's rights are being protected, and that includes that right to a speedy trial. But if the delays are caused by the defendant, this doesn't count against the state in any way. Reginald was able to continue to delay proceedings by going back and forth about defending himself. So he was appointed lawyers, then he fired them to go pro se, then he wanted the public defenders back, and then he changed his mind again. The judge seemed, from the transcripts I read, incredibly patient with this, much more patient than I would have been. He was willing to hear Reginald out about his complaints, things he felt his attorneys had missed or weren't doing properly. And the judge was going to let him defend himself if that's what he wanted. But eventually, the judge's patience ran out. He appointed attorneys to Reginald and said the trial was going forward. End of story. And the trial started eight years after Naila's death. He dragged this out for eight years. And he was locked up in the Cook County Jail this whole time. He spent eight years in pretrial detention because of his own delays. The one thing the stalling did accomplish for him is that this was no longer a death penalty case. Somewhere around, I want to say, the fourth year of delays, Illinois abolished capital punishment. So Reginald was now looking at life without parole. Naila's family did attend the trial, which began in late October 2015, with the exception of her father. He had died the year before. The family said his grief contributed to his declining health. The state's theory of the crime was that Reginald had somehow gotten Naila's guard down enough that she left her apartment with him. In the parking garage, he ambushed her and strangled her. He then put her body in the trunk of her car. He then drove south to Calumet City, where he disposed of some evidence and Naila's body, and then Hammond, where he dumped her car. Reginald then kept up the ruse that Naila was still alive by texting her friends, making a dinner reservation, and even calling Brent. Then, when he was back in Chicago, he called 911 from her phone to make it look like Naila never left the city and that she was attacked after 10 p.m., Then he went and met up with his various girlfriends to make it look like he couldn't possibly have done anything because he had an alibi when those 911 calls came in. The evidence included all that security footage, friends testifying about the voicemail where he threatened to have Naila erased. They found out that the video store where Naila's body was found right behind it, that was owned by Reginald's brother-in-law. But the smoking gun, as it were, was that cell phone data. It showed that Reginald's phone and Naila's phone traveled together to where her items were found, where her body was found, where her car was dumped, and then back to Chicago. The defense decided, 
what they had to work with was the lack of evidence. Everything was circumstantial, so they tried to encourage what we call the CSI effect, that the forensic-heavy crime dramas on TV influenced jurors to expect that type of hard evidence in order to convict. In my research reading the National Institute of Justice's view on this, it seems that this is more of an anecdotally based belief of law enforcement and prosecutors rather than a documented phenomenon. But that's what Reginald had available to him. The defense team pointed out that there was no DNA, fingerprints, or witnesses that linked Reginald to the murder. In fact, the medical examiner couldn't even conclusively say how Naila was killed. They also said that the prosecutors didn't know where or when Naila died, and I will reluctantly agree with them on this point. Reginald strangling Naila in the parking garage in broad daylight seems a little shaky. But do prosecutors have to prove every element of a crime to win a conviction? No, they do not. The other thing the defense tried was to say that cell tower location is a flawed process. It's not 100%, which we all know. A phone can be sent to a tower that's farther away. And they may have gotten somewhere with this argument if the two cell phones pinged in one place together. But they followed each other to multiple points. And it's hard to believe that all of this was flawed for a 50-mile round trip. There was one part of the cell phone evidence the defense wanted the jury to accept, and that was the 7.30 call to Brent. The state's theory was that Naila was already dead at this point, but Brent said he heard a voice that he thought was Naila's. The state focused on the call being staticky, short, and hard to understand. Under those conditions, maybe it was a man imitating a woman's voice. In the end, the jury took just two hours and 15 minutes to find Reginald guilty. In March 2016, the sentencing phase began, and it took five days, which is an incredibly long time to hear witnesses for a sentencing. On the first day, Reginald, who's now 38 years old, refused to participate. He said he didn't want the media there. They were sensationalizing everything. He didn't want to be on video. He didn't want to be on camera. When he learned that the hearing would continue without him and he would not be able to assist his attorneys if he refused to be there, he changed his mind. The bulk of Reginald's criminal history was not admissible during the jury trial, but it was allowed to be considered during sentencing. And it painted Reginald as a con man who could talk his way through life. But when his back was against the wall, he turned violent. They had around 35 witnesses testify to this, as well as the victim impact statements. Reginald spoke for 40 minutes on his own behalf, and some of Naila's family left the courtroom. They were not going to entertain what he had to say. In his statement, Reginald continued to deny his guilt. He seemed to think the alleged motive was that Naila broke things off with him, so he addressed that multiple times claiming he was the one who broke up with her. It seems like he may be missing the nuance here. Naila didn't just break things off with him. She exposed his lies to the people. That, that was the root of this. But he kept insisting in a statement that he was the one who broke up with Naila, 
It seemed very important to him that everyone knew that. Reginald asked the judge to consider his three daughters and give him something less than life in prison so that he could one day get out and be part of their lives. But he said he could not apologize for something he didn't do. The judge did not buy a word of this. And I want to make sure I get this quote right because it's just that good. The judge called Reginald a cold, calculating, conniving coward of a con man and then gave him life with no possibility of parole. Referring back to the threatening voicemail Reginald had left for Naila, the judge said, You didn't erase her, Mr. Potts. She lives on in the hearts and minds of those who cherished her while she was alive. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 